Welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. With me are co-hosts, Hatter Edmund and Elliot. How are y'all? Doing well. How are you? So we just heard some very dramatic music as our uh, resident uh, Wagnerian. Elliot, why don't you tell us what, okay. we, uh, what we were listening to and, and why we chose it for this episode, which is on vengeance and uh, punishment. Um, so what we heard is from the first part of Wagner's Ring Cycle, uh, and it's uh, it's actually pretty uninteresting music for Wagner and for the Ring specifically. I mean, there's not there's not really that much going on, um, but I I really like it. Uh, I think it's neat. So basically, uh, the Ring Cycle is this long series of somewhat disconnected uh, events surrounding the forging of this ring by an evil dwarf named Alberic. And in this scene, uh, Alberic has just been basically extorted out of his huge hoard of gold that he amassed using the ring um, by a group of the gods, uh, Votan and, and Loki, or, or Loga. Um, and so uh, his, uh, his revenge on them is to curse the ring that they've stolen from him. Um, and so... Uh, the the cursing of the ring kind of sets in motion a bunch of other things that happen during the course of this set of operas. Um, so it's it's fitting for our topic in that way. Although uh, Al- Albrecht's curse is uh, is <laughs> not really uh, 
uh, virtuous uh, vengeance. It's not really in a <laughs> spirit of justice. I mean, uh, basically, he, he's saying something like, uh, you know, whoever, whoever possesses what you took from me uh, will be destroyed by it uh, uh, until he gives it up or until uh, it's returned to, to me, Elbrick. And, and everyone else will envy it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so people it, will murder each other to possess it, and then right. eventually it'll come back to him. Right, of course. So the the I think I mean it's just it's such a great opera. Uh, if you haven't if you haven't listened to Rheingold, uh, I I really highly highly recommend it. It's it's a very fun story, great music, um, but it's fun in this case because uh, in the immediate next scene. Um, the uh, the giants that Alberic's gold was stolen to pay off, uh, they start envying the ring, and Votan doesn't want to give it up, and this almost leads to a, a battle with the giants, and then he gives it to the giants, and uh, then one of the giants murders the other in order to get the ring. So there's this sort of cycle of of uh, greed and envy and and murder. Um, that just keeps going on and on, you know, and in two operas later, Siegfried murders, uh, the giant who murdered his brother, who has since become a dragon, you know, inexplicably, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and steals the ring from him, and then later on, uh, the ring is taken from Siegfried, and, and this other guy wants it from, uh, Brunhilde, who ended up with the ring, and, and then it ends up destroying the entire world. Literally, uh, the world goes up in flames because Brunhilde is so distraught over the cycle of murders that's uh, followed from uh, from the ring, basically. So, yeah, it's yeah. an amazing artistic achievement. The ring cycle, taken as yeah. a whole, it's got such um, musical unity too. I mean, Wagner uses these recurring motifs to uh, right to keep this whole, you know enormous hours and hours and hours of, of musical drama united. Yeah, so one of the things that's significant, uh, if I remember correctly, is that uh, in this specific uh, aria, this, this curse is one of the, it's the first time that Wagner uses one of the key uh, motifs in the ring cycle. Um, so, you know, there's that. Uh, but I... I, I really like Albrecht as a character. Um, <laughs> I, you know, he's, he's pretty sympathetic. He, he forges the ring because he's trying to seduce a group of, uh, of, of river maidens. And, uh, who can't relate, you know? Yeah. I mean, we all? Yeah. And, and they all reject him. They just make fun of him repeatedly and then pretend that they've changed their minds and then they mock him again. And then, stupidly, they tell him that, hey, there's this hunk of gold that we're guarding, and anyone who curses love and steals the gold from us will become all-powerful. And so Alberic curses love, steals the, the gold, and forges the ring. Um, but he, you know, he's not very smart when, once he's all-powerful, unfortunately. So uh, the ring gets taken Loki easily. Loki easily uh, fools him into shape-shifting into something that can't wear the ring and Right, grabs right, it, right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and they just laugh at him, and yeah, it's it's sad. But anyway, uh, so yeah, yeah Wagner is very interesting. There's a lot we could talk about. Uh, you know, uh, Wagner's ideas of, of music and 
and drama. And this scene is more of the, the drama is, is sort of uh, predominant over the music. Right, yeah. Uh, although the music works very well to support the drama, but the, the, the point is the, the dramatic uh, cursing of... Uh, right, yeah. So, oh. so uh, I mean, the, it's not like... Um, it's not like a, a Zingspiel uh, where there's sort of, you know, peppy uh, numbers interspersed with dialogue. Um, yeah, recitative or whatever. Right, um, and you know, it's it's uh, it's something peculiar. The 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 ring operas are all through composed. The music just doesn't stop um, all the way through. I mean, and, uh, in some cases there are intermissions during between acts, but. Um, uh, yeah, so the consequence is that even the most mundane dialogue or things that wouldn't necessarily offer themselves as opportunities for some sort of, you know, brilliant Mozart-style opera, or aria, sorry, uh, or choral number, there are almost no choral numbers uh, in the ring, um, get, they have to be sort of dramatized through music, so it's part of this Wagnerian idea of the perfect unity of the art forms um, in, in opera. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of his interesting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this, anyway. this cycle of, of, uh, destruction that begins with, with Albrecht's curse. And this is the kind of thing that we see a lot in history. You look at, um, you know, the Near East and <laughs> sort of cycle of We, we, we of see people stealing so gold from river maidens and... Uh, Not so much that, things. but we see people, one side revenging itself on the other side, and then that side revenges itself on the other side. Like feuds in Corsica, where the, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict or something, where all this, there's this kind of spiral of vengeance. And this leads a lot of people to say, you know, Seeking retribution for wrongs is just leads to more wrongs, and you shouldn't do it. Everyone, everyone should just forgive each other and say, "Whatever, the past is past. Uh, we don't, we don't want any justice. Let's just have, um, you know, peace and and, and joy and uh, uh, not a, not give up the the thirst for justice." Yeah, yeah. Right. An, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, right? Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. There's sort of a beautiful portrait, uh, a little bit closer to home for me, in uh, Huckleberry Finn, where he comes across the two feuding families. <laughs> yeah. And the daughter, I forget if it's the daughter of the family he's with, and the son of the other family, I think it's that way, go off and run off to get married, and the immediate reaction from both families is, we're going to go kill all the other guys. <laughs> How dare they? How dare they? Uh, so there's also some scriptural support, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, isn't, so, so this idea is that vengeance is bad, right? Right. The idea is that vengeance is something that's either reserved to God or there's a more extreme version, which is uh, very common today, I think, which is vengeance is reserved to God, but don't worry, God's merciful, so... You know, there'll be no vengeance, really. Right. Yeah. So Turn, vengeance turning the other thing? cheek, just sort of transcendentalized, right, into this right, sort right, of right. cosmic principle. So why is is, is is punishment always bad? I guess we could we could ask that question, right? 
Yeah, that seems like a pretty fundamental question for this topic. Yeah. What? Thomas gives a uh, a devotes some time in the Soma to talking about punishment. He talks about debt of punishment and also uh, the uh, has an article called Of Vengeance. Uh, Vindicazione is uh, De Vindicazione is the Latin uh, which is I think usually translated vengeance. And it starts off whether vengeance is lawful. So maybe we could start there because Thomas answers in the affirmative. He says, on the contrary, we should look to nothing, we should look to God for nothing save what is good and lawful, but we are to look to God for vengeance on his enemies. Yeah. For it is written, will not God revenge his elect who cry to him day and night, as if to say, he will indeed. So why, what makes vengeance good? Well, well, what makes... Sorry, <laughs> sorry go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, you, you go first, Elliot. <laughs> okay. What, what makes it unlawful, uh, Thomas seems to think, is in part the intention of the person uh, exacting vengeance or desiring it, right? So uh, if, you, if you want something evil, then your, then your desire for vengeance is not good. Uh, but if you seek the good, then it could be good. Um, and... Thomas does, I think, also, you, you can go to that point, Thomas does reserve vengeance to God in a way so that you have to be acting, this is why uh, the Hatfields and McCoys are, are a particularly uh, good example of vengeance gone bad. Vengeance isn't something that the private man should be seeking, but only the minister appointed by God, Right? Yeah. Uh, so Thomas builds that off Romans thirteen four, uh, which he, he takes to mean that the earthly minister, he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Uh, yeah. But someone who takes vengeance outside that order of divine appointment usurps what is God and therefore sins. And in yes, a way, no. I mean, one indication that vengeance isn't simply bad is that God is the author of nature, and there seems to be a strong natural inclination to vengeance. That is, uh, and and a kind of fittingness. I mean, even when you're reading literature, there's fittingness when you see the evil punished um, and the good rewarded, and even more when you yourself are injured. There seems to be this natural inclination to want the one who injured you to <laughs> suffer some punishment. Um, and if that were strictly evil. Um, in its very essence, then it would be strange that we would have such a natural inclination. Yeah. So there's another, um, there's another way in maybe the, uh, uh, what vengeance is, is seeking to restore. So, so why do we punish people? Well, there's sort of two ways to think about it. We're punishing either to, well, I mean, you could divide it different ways, but you're punishing either uh, out of retribution or you're punishing out of some sort of deterrence. So there's uh, specific deterrence. This guy specifically will no longer murder anyone if we either lock him up for life or kill him. Mm-hmm. Or this guy specifically 
uh, or rather others, will be deterred from doing what he did when they see the horrible things we do to him. Uh, yeah, and, and to build on that uh, briefly, I, deterrence, uh, I think that the pairing that you, you gave is what comes up frequently in modern discussions of, of right. punishment. Um, but deterrence is also, it's, it's to educate, right? So uh, you could say that in a way punishment educates the one punished about the true order of justice uh, and it educates uh, the community by showing them uh, the real nature of a crime. Um, by like sort of manifesting its evil through its through an imposed consequence, since uh, there's a sort of uh, accidental defect of of immediacy uh, in the in the uh, in the eternal consequence of right. of something bad. Yeah. So, so I mean, this is often often put as two different uh, ends of of punishment. So in it, it's giving a total of three then so retribution the the correction of the one who's actually being punished and then right. the the education or the e example that's given to other people not the one being punished right but it seems so like the yeah, most sometimes they divide it between specific and general deterrence mm -hmm. and sometimes they just so some people just divide it uh as if there were two and the second is divided as i said mm -hmm. yeah yeah but the first, it seems to me that the first one is the most fundamental, that is um, the retribution. Um, and it, it's only because retribution, it's only if and because retribution makes sense that uh, the other two um, make sense. That is, if it wasn't just to, uh, to inflict pain on account of, of uh, harm or crime, then it wouldn't be just to inflict it for the sake of deterrence. And you can see this in that the, the need of, of proportionality comes from the aspect of retribution. That is, if um, Dracus, the, the, you know, the Athenian legislator who would execute people for any little thing, um, that seems clearly unjust to us, even though it's a great deterrent. You know, people are not going to litter if they know they're going to suffer the death penalty for littering. Um, but there seems there, there's something unjust about that because there's no proportion between littering and suffering the death penalty. So I don't know if Jack is actually had a lot about littering, but <laughs> 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 I know that he had, he had very was was littering a concept, you know, <laughs> in ancient <laughs> Athens. I don't actually in know. ancient Athens. I'm probably kind of wonder. Actually, judging so judging modern by modern Athens, <laughs> it's probably not. Oh, so, dear. so question. So, okay. So, there's this idea of proportionality between the punishment and the crime, um, but is that uh, you? You know, just to play devil's advocate, you could say, well, proportionality is just uh, to make f people feel better. Uh, that, you know, I'm being punished for, uh, say, grand larceny or something. I stole a, a car. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, and. Uh, this other guy is being punished for um, murdering uh, 10 people. So obviously my punishment should be less because it, what I did is less bad. But is, is there something in the crime that, that makes it 
like really proportionate to a certain punishment or is it just there's a sort of there's a scale on the badness of a crime and we feel like we ought to match that just sort of arbitrarily to the badness of punishments well the way that St. Thomas um, explains retribution it seems to me you have to hold that there is really a correspondence even if it's not always possible to to find the correspondence in a particular case Mm-hmm. But you're thinking of um, a teleological order of beings. And within this teleological order, um, a crime is when one of these beings um, goes against the order, which is, you know, going against its own, uh, the, the purpose of its own life. It's going against its own telos. Uh, but it's also destroying the larger or wounding the larger order that it's a part of. Um, And the retribution is supposed to restore uh, the order that's been damaged. Um, One one way of of thinking about it that some Thomistic authors use is that usually, according to the teleological order of things, there should be a connection between um, unimpeded activity in accordance with one's own end and the pleasure or joy that flows from that. So pleasure, teleologically understood, pl- pleasure is connected to what is conducive to your end. Um, and in the higher pleasures, it's in fact inseparable. But in lower pleasures, you can separate them. And so there, there comes the possibility of choosing things for the sake of a disordered pleasure that's not really connected to your end. Um, and isn't, then isn't also choosing things for pleasure uh, for Thomas uh, in some way disordered? Yes. You if you choose it primarily the for the pleasure, that's in itself disordered. But it's even clearer is the case where someone, um, I mean, take, take for example, uh, hang on, someone who uh, commits adultery, right? Say he, he does this um, out of the desire for a pleasure which ought to be connected to an act that's conducive to the end, the, the act of union with his wife that you know, is ordered to the procreation of, of offspring and so on. But instead, he's choosing the pleasure um, apart from the, the order of ends. And so to restore that, the order among the different uh, beings particularly this restore order between that man and the man whose wife he committed adultery with, it's fitting that a pleasure, as it were, uh, a pain, pain is, as it were, the privation of pleasure, um, and, and the, it should be inflicted on him that's in a way equal and opposite to the uh, disordered pleasure that he took. Mm-hmm. So there's kind yeah. of res- restoration there of... Uh, of the order in inflicting on him something that's proportionate to what he took. Right. So, <clears throat> okay. So here's here's a here's an objection. Um, so I suppose we could we could draw an analogy to a, a garden uh, in which you know there, there's a variety of plants um, all growing together. Some uh, some are healthy. Some are uh, invasive, uh, etc. And uh, it, it so happens that um, one plant uh, is unhealthy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's, uh, it's sickly, it's not bearing fruit. Um, it just so you could you could object to the account of punishment that, that you just gave um, by saying, well, surely it makes no sense to take uh, a plant that's unhealthy and wound it further uh, in order to somehow bring about the order of the garden again, right? It just doesn't it doesn't seem fitting. Or you know, in an extreme case, you wouldn't. Uh, uproot the plant and incinerate it um, in, in order to uh, provide greater integrity to it or to its its you know help it find its its end again among all the other plants so what's different about people uh, or what am, what's missing in that analogy well at first I would first point to what is um, true about that analogy what does correspond to the order among um, rational creatures before then showing that there's, of course, a difference that comes from rational mm -hmm. nature. But there is some similarity there. If you're tending a garden, um, the plants can become disordered both by defect and by excess. So you can have one uh, sort of plant in your garden that there's too much of, and it is sort of strangling the other plants because it's, it's hogging all the sunlight and so on. And yeah. so then you have to cut that back to the, its proper place to get the order, um, to restore the order. Or you can have a plant that's, you know, is suffering by defect, like the one that you mentioned, the sort of sickly plant. And um, you can try to tend that plant and, and, you know, give it special care, whatever horticulturalists do to make their plants uh, stronger and <laughs> I've all the biggest ideas about garden, gardening works but, <laughs> but then you, you know you t you, that would be another way of restoring the order would be to to uh, bring it back into into uh, the proper relation to other things and that is similar to what happens in in punishment when the one who has care of an order that uh, as St. Thomas says the, the rulers, in a way, the beginning of an order, the principle of an order. He's, in a certain sense, the cause of the order. And so the ruler who has the care of a certain order, he, in punishing, he is um, correcting excess and defect in a way. But it's mostly an excess and defect, um, and here's where the difference comes in, mm -hmm. um, in the order of, in, of intentions. And so... Punishment corrects bad intentions by, uh, by doing something that is, as it were, um, at least in sort of the kind of thing it is against, against one's will. All things being equal, it would be against my will to suffer pain of whatever. There are different kinds of pains that um, are used in punishment, either you know, in scourging, say you have actual bodily pain, in imprisonment, you have the deprivation of liberty, which is also causes a kind of suffering, um, and and so on. So there's you're causing something that is against the will um, to to as you were saying at the, the beginning of the discussion. That's a kind of an educative uh, act by making him suffer in his will. You lead him to understand that what he did was bad. You restore, as it were, the connection between bad action and pain that is that would be natural, but that is so, sort of evaded 
by um, disordered pleasure. So is all justice um, or all all uh, retribution uh, fundamentally restorative? Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. The idea is there is an order um, that's good, uh, a teleological order that is an order of things um, to an end and to their respective ends in um, together so that they have a kind of unity among each other. And that order is, is disturbed by crime. Um, and that's and so punishment is always restoring that disturbed order. I mean, this is, uh, we talked a while back with um, Andrew Willard-Jones, or Alan Femister and I did on the podcast a few episodes back. And he talks about this um, in the, the Kingdom of France under uh, St. Louis IX, um, how this, how clearly this is expressed sort of in the jurisprudence of the time and in the actual judgments of the court, the Parlement, that you have this idea that there is the, the basic the basic state of society, as it were, is a state of order and peace. And the, the role of um, the courts is to restore that, and of the king, uh, is to restore that peace when it's disturbed. And that's what punishment is. Okay. It, so the modern, modern jurisprudence departs from all this uh, uh, quite, quite radically. Uh, deterrence, Eliot gave this, this sort of Thomistic account of deterrence about being about educating the soul and about, uh, you know, all, all that. The modern view is simply... <laughs> so, so, so dismissive. <laughs> uh, the, so, yeah, the modern view is much more... Uh, to, to give a, to a simplified version of it is much more you can't do anything about spilt milk but if you have someone who's going to keep spilling milk you stop him from doing it to protect others or if you can get him to agree to see that he, he shouldn't uh, uh, spill milk again sort of like training a dog you know, by slapping it with a newspaper you're not, uh, that's what you should do so you're not really, in a sense you're educating the dog but you're not really what you're doing there is mostly uh, just keeping the dog from, you know, uh, peeing on the carpet or whatever. But isn't you're there, not really, it, you're not, you don't really care about the dog itself. It's just, you know, we want to keep society from suffering these, these faults. So deterrence becomes the primary end of punishment. And then there's a second thing modern jurisprudence will do sometimes, depending on uh, how Kantian the... Uh, uh, jurist is and that is uh, the dignity and freedom of man is such that we can punish if we have to protect society and we can even sometimes sort of try to get people to see they shouldn't do this they should do that they should you know uh, not steal uh, they should act so that their their actions can always be a universal maxim uh, but the idea is that because of the dignity of man, punishment is always only protective. And there is something always bad about it. It's just something bad that you uh, tolerate for the sake of the greater good of society needing to, to uh, continue. So I, I want to I talk more about dignity. But first, uh, there isn't there, there is a, an idea of... of uh, a restoration of damages in modern jurisprudence. Sure. So, right? so, but the example, so like if, if I steal 
you know, $20 from the store, mm-hmm. they will want me to make the victim whole by giving $20 back. Right. Much more, or much of punishment, though, is about things that don't have that possibility. If I blind someone, the modern jurist will say, or, or might say, some of them might say anyway, uh, blinding me back, as the ancient Babylonians would have done, doesn't make the other person get their sight, by, sight back. If I get drunk and plow into a car and kill some, uh, uh, you know, child, God forbid, you know, uh, throwing me in jail or uh, caning me or whatever punishment you come up with isn't going to get the life of that girl back. It's it, she's she's gone. There's nothing you can do. The reason you'll throw me in jail is so that everyone will see. Hey, getting drunk and driving is a really bad idea. It'll, you know, it's a felony murder, whatever. Uh, potentially, if it, if it was a felony DUI case, uh, and uh, manslaughter and all this stuff. The reason those crimes uh, carry heavy penalties is really it's about general deterrence and maybe also about specific deterrence. But in a lot of cases, uh, you know. Uh, people are very skeptical about the ability of the penal system to have a specific deterrent effect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there you have the loss of a teleological understanding of order. So order is something totally extrinsic um, in right. much of modern thought and therefore in modern jurisprudence. So the difference with with the way Plato and Aristotle and St. Thomas would think about uh order is that there's uh, the order is, is teleological and that means it's really good for me. I'm really ordered to it um, as to an end. And as a rational being, I'm even capable of understanding the good to which I'm ordered, which a dog is not. The dog, you know, you spank him with a paper um, in order so he won't pee on the floor or whatever. But the dog has no understanding of, of you know, the good of the household that he's a part of. He's just a quasi-instrument of his master. But a human being is able is able to understand that uh, what he did is wrong. And so, you know, Socrates in the, the Gorgias, he goes through one of his, his little... Uh, <laughs> his little um, trick uh, interviews uh, to prove that the, the the man who's punished is actually benefited by the punishment since um, justice is something good and in being punished justly uh, the, the, the one who's punishing is, is doing something good uh, and the one who's being punished is therefore receiving something good, namely justice. And it, that, in fact, depends on. I mean, Socrates doesn't doesn't say this, but you could dr- conclude from that that, in fact, it um, it's because of the dignity of man that he's uh, able to be punished in the full sense. A dog is only kind of in a, in a secondary sense is published punished. But the man, because he's he's capable of understanding that it's what he's suffering is justice, um, on account of the dignity of rational nature, it's beneficial to. So what what is human dignity? Yeah, maybe we should talk about that. We've 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 yeah, we've taken shots at dignity. <laughs> we've never direct, directly addressed it. As I recall, Charles DeConnick actually has a really great discussion of, of dignity and the uh, and the primacy uh, of the common good. The primacy of the common good, yes. Yeah. And, and towards the end, one of his he gives some objections at the end of that. 
Yeah, well, the basic idea of dignity, I mean, in, in dignity is a Latin word, obviously, dignitas, and it comes from dignus, which means worthy. Um, so it means worthiness to receive some good. And especially in Latin, it means worthiness to receive honor. Honor is the recognition of excellence in someone, um, kind of the manifestation of their excellence um, in other people's uh, recognition of it. So dignity means basically being worthy of honor, being worthy of having your excellence recognized by others. That's what dignity is. And um, there's a certain... Yeah, well, what, what's what's worthiness? You know, we've just uh, we've just pushed back the question a layer, right? What makes right. someone or something uh, worthy of honor? That they're excellent in some way. Okay. That they uh, are um, not just better than others, which is kind of one meaning of excellent, but that that they have. Um, a good that is that is a noble good that's good for its own sake that's high on the scale of of ends um, so if you look at Homer for example the hero who is has who is worthy of being honored is one who is virtuous who has great courage for example which is the primary virtue in, in Homer so the courageous uh, warrior who goes into battle and, and, and kills a whole bunch of enemies and so on without fear and, and uh, brings terror to others without being terrified himself. He is worthy of honor. So uh, DeConnick brings up this objection. Maybe this will be a, a good way to talk about it. That uh, dignity signifies good for self. Utility, goodness for other than self. This is back to the idea of it's a good for its own sake. So dignity is something uh, uh, good for its own self. Utility is good only to serve another. Mm -hmm. uh, and moreover, that dignity is something that is said of absolutes. Uh, and therefore, the objection goes, persons are ordered and governed for themselves. And this, this would cut against the entire idea that we've been, we've been pushing at, that uh, punishment is for the sake of the order, the teleological order as a whole. If people have a personal dignity that is a good for its own sake, uh, so in other words, you know, the, the goodness of my soul is something that is its own good, then punishing would seem to be inappropriate, or at least it could be inappropriate if it was too much, because you would go against that goodness that exists on its own and not in connection with this order. So how does, how does DeConnick talk about that uh, uh, sense of dignity? I have to, I have to admit, you, you read that quote and you immediately lost me. Like, I have no idea what that means. What, what is it? He said something about absolutes? What? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, Potter, you could walk us through. What does it mean to say dignity is said of absolutes? <laughs> what, yeah, what absolutes? Well, absolute is, means you're considering something in itself rather than in relation to another thing. So it's, uh, I w honor is the recognition of excellence in a thing, but um, here you're not looking at excellence 
insofar as it means excelling in the etymological sense of excellence, that is, excelling over other things. But you're looking at it in itself, that is, intrinsic goodness of the thing. So, um, the, yeah. But it seems, what DeConnick will go on to argue, if I remember the, the passage right, is that um, the, in fact, the, the good of man is a common good, as we talked about in our very first episode. So uh, <laughs> human happiness is a common good. And so um, the, the dignity of man, the worthiness of being honored of a man, is that he attains to a good that is common. So someone who is, is really virtuous is someone who is attaining to the common good. And to the extent that he is acting against the common good, he's, as it were, undermining the foundation of what makes him worthy of honor, that is, the foundation of his own dignity. So he, um, if, say, I'm a, a, a murderer and, and a traitor and um, a coward and you know every bad thing, then I'm undermining the common good of the community of which I'm a part and so instead of being worthy of honor I'm worthy of dishonor and mm-hmm. so I've destroyed so, yeah, my dignity his, his response basically uh, just looking at the text is along the lines of what Potter said but also he stresses that dignity is something that can be lost because it's not goodness is not simply uh, if I'm remembering right uh Rational creatures, here's what he says, rational creatures draws its dignity from the fact that by its proper operation, by its intelligence and against its love, it can obtain the ultimate end of the universe. By its intelligence and, and love, the against is, yeah, a, yeah. is a type, is a print, yeah, yeah, yeah. print error. <laughs> <laughs> by its intelligence I, I, and love. I know yeah. the cause of that print error. <laughs> 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 that makes more story. sense. I was, I was, as I was reading, I was like, against? I'm going to gloss right it, over that and pretend it wasn't there. At some point uh, when that text was digitized, this is totally dumb digression, but maybe flavor for, for our listeners, uh, that, that text was digitized and someone did a, a, a find and replace all uh, with, uh, with the word and, or there, there was some yeah, combination yeah, yeah, of words and, and they, so <laughs> every, every, uh, every instance of and has against <laughs> inserted after it. Not every, but at least there's some that yeah, that it's do. it's common and it's very confusing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, sorry, go on. So intellectual and rational creatures exceed other creatures both by the perfection of their nature and by the dignity of their end. But the perfection of their nature, because the rational creature is the only one which is master of its acts and freely determines itself to operate as it does, whereas the other creatures are rather more moved to action than agents themselves by the dignity of their end, because only the intellectual creature rises as high as the very ultimate end of the universe, namely by knowing God and loving him. Mm-hmm. So, there so are... insofar as the rational creature can attain itself to the end of God's manifestation outside himself, the rational creature does exist for itself. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, the rational creature exists for the dignity of its own being, 
and they are themselves the dignity for which they exist. Rather, they draw their dignity from the end to which they can and must attain. Their dignity consists in the fact that they can attain the end of the universe. And Thomas actually talks about irreparable versus repairable harm. Yeah, well, let, let's whether try any to, sin can incur a debt of eternal punishment. Yeah, let's let's unpack what that quote that you just read a little yeah. bit though, because it's maybe a little bit unintelligible if you hear it for the first time. <laughs> so, so, so there's a there's a distinction right between um, the perfection of of a human being, say, uh, by virtue of uh, our supernatural end. Um, so that's sort of intrinsic. Nothing I could do could remove that dignity, right? Uh, I could, you know, become a mass murderer or, or live in a hole or who knows, uh, and, and I would still have that dignity. Um, but then there's a second layer um, that comes by virtue of uh, acting for that end, right? Um, uh, so to the extent that I... Uh, became a mass murderer or, or lived in a hole or, well, living in a hole maybe a bad example, but, you know, uh, did something totally unworthy, um, it would it would detract from uh, my dignity, right? So is, is that the idea? Yeah. I mean, one another way of putting it would be to say dignity is... Dignity involves two goods. It involves one good that you have um, that makes you worthy of receiving another good. So human beings have one good, namely rational nature, which makes them at least able to attain to the, the highest good, the good of the whole universe. Um, but whether they're worthy of receiving that good would depend, as you say, on whether they use that rational nature in accordance with that end, that is, trying to attain that end and furthering that end, or whether they turn against it. So they're two goods, and to have dignity means they're kind of um, in harmony, and to lose your dignity would mean you oppose them in a way. So then uh, the sort of natural objection goes back to what Joel was saying, which is, how could you have uh, a debt of eternal punishment which deprives you of the possibility of uh, reaching that, that end that gave you all your dignity? And how could that punishment uh, be an act of restoration of justice or order um, if it's permanently cutting you off from the possibility of perfection? Yeah. That's the question. Now, Joel, you, you go ahead and give <laughs> the solution that you're about to give. <laughs> uh, so this is in the uh, Prima Secundae, uh, question 87, article 3, whether okay. any sin incurs a debt of eternal punishment. And in fact, question 87 just generally is a very rich text. Uh, but what Thomas says in the corpus there is that uh, sin incurs the debt of punishment through disturbing an order. And, and I mean, this is the, the idea of order is so central to understanding punishment in Thomistic terms. Uh, it, it's just, it, he's stressing it again here. 
And so then he says the effect remains so long as the cause remains, uh, because for Thomas, effects are dependent on causes. Uh, Wherefore, so long as the disturbance of the order remains, the debt of punishment must need also remain. So, and then he, he goes on. So you can have repairable disturbances and you can have irreparable. And he gives an analogy of like, if you have something wrong with your eyes that medicine can fix, that's repairable, but if the principle of sight's destroyed, it's irreparable. You can't, you can't uh, bring it back. Uh, so if sin destroys the principle of order whereby uh, men's will is subject to God, the disorder could be irreparable if, in doing so, he turns away uh, from God's, uh, from, from charity. So it's only repairable by a supernatural power, by the power of God. Therefore, whenever uh, you turn away from God to sin, to, so as to destroy charity, rather than just to, to wound it, maybe, uh, in itself, you've incurred a debt of eternal punishment. Because, because the order is such that you, it, it can't be repaired uh, unless there was a supernatural uh, uh, means. Yeah, so there, I mean, this, here we bring up the, the, the whole problem of the relation of nature and supernature. What what makes you what gives you dignity, this kind of dignity, the kind of dignity that's lost in damnation, is not just rational nature, but participation in divine life. That is, because you've been adopted as a child of God in baptism, that gives you the worthiness to receive the eternal life, the supernatural final end. So there it's... Um, that's a higher dignity than the natural dignity of man. And so the punishment that is the deprival of that um, comes uh, from the, re the removal of the divine life from your soul by turning against charity, which is the, 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 uh, the habit of loving God as the supernatural good. So there it's, it's a supernatural dignity that you've destroyed through a mortal sin. Every time you sin mortally, what you're saying, I implicitly at least, with that action, is that you do not love God as your highest end um, right. and as your supernatural good. So that destroys charity in the soul, which is the, the principle of this supernatural dignity, um, which you've then lost. Uh, that so can be repaired as long as you're still alive. You can go to confession, luckily. Right. Yes. <laughs> so this is obviously, I, I, just to make this totally explicit, this is why mortal sins are called mortal sins, right? Yeah. I mean, because right. it's, it's a spiritual death. You know, if a sick person can be healed with medicine, a, a dead person needs to be brought, brought back to life again, which is something on a, a different order. So I, I have a, a, a follow-up, which is, are there... Are there crimes in the natural order that have a sort of proportionate uh, damage or effect to a mortal sin? If that makes sense, like yeah. so with a they mortal compare sin, to the good to to the temporal common good the way mortal sin compares exactly. to the supernatural common good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you know I think there's a bunch of things that are that are comparable to mortal sin but those things are usually also mortal sins well sure <laughs> we don't exist in a state of pure nature 
So it's not like, uh, you know, I mean, Dante places uh, people who uh, debase currency in one of the lowest circles. If I recall <laughs> now, that's obviously in itself. I mean, what, what are you primarily going against? You're going against the natural order because, you know, cur- currency is very much a this worldly thing. But it's a, a consequence of, uh, you know, the natural law uh, that we're, we will, at some point in civilization, have a positive arrangement of money. And to go against that goes against the common good. Because if you're, you know, going into that, you're, you're, you're destroying the ability to have justice in buying and selling. Uh, but also, we in fact have two tiers, and there's also the supernatural end. And by doing that, you're, you're implicitly saying that you don't love God as your greatest end. Right. But, but uh, the restoration of justice with regard to the supernatural common good of eternal life, that belongs to God. So God will punish you in eternity for that. And the the role of the temporal ruler or even of spiritual rulers is not to punish people with respect. That is not to restore justice with respect to the ultimate supernatural common good, but to res- to restore justice with respect to a temporal common good, either the temporal common good of um, a temporal society of the state or whatever, or even um, the punishments that the church provides for in canon law, they're meant to restore justice with respect to um, a kind of uh, a temporal common good that, that the church has uh, in this life, the pilgrim church has. So the punishments in canon law are not res- meant to, to give kind of ultimate retribution for people's sins, but just no. to, to you know, preserve the common good of the pilgrim church on earth. Thomas makes two points, actually, that, uh, that, that, that relate to that in the earlier, I think it's earlier, discussion of, uh, of vengeance, the question he has on vengeance. Mm-hmm. Uh, first it's is later, that in... for the record, Joel. It's later. Oh, later. Sorry. <laughs> I get lost sometimes I'm in sorry, the, the prima and the secunde. Uh, it's a, a silly uh, correction. Later in the sense of below. <laughs> further down in the scroll. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, but the 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 point is uh, first that in in this world, uh, punishment is more medicinal medicinal than uh, vindicative. It's more medicinal than retributive because uh, we're still trying to restore and because of the second point which is that even in this world even for for like the temporal sins uh uh, vengeance does belong to god but as the text from romans i think it was shows and many other texts uh god has ordained a temporal order and a in fact a spiritual order that have the authority from god to punish so right. both the church and the state, so the rulers uh, in both spiritual and temporal matters, do have the right to punishment, but bec- not because it's theirs sort of by nature, but because God has uh, uh, devolved it to them. Yeah, because the origin of legitimate authority is uh, is the natural law, which is written by God um, yes. into our hearts and so on. And so the, the temporal ruler, but to c- come back to, to Elliot's question, there are crimes in the temporal order 
um, that are so contrary to the common good, to the temporal common good, that the the ruler is justified in completely destroying the the criminal's participation in that good. And in a way, that's analogous to damnation, as he was saying. But it would be capital punishment. That is, by killing someone, you completely destroy their ability to participate in the temporal common good. Life is is, is is the is the uh, is not the is not the best temporal good. Life isn't, but it's the most necessary in the sense that without life, you can't participate in any other temporal good. So, by killing someone, you deprive them of all temporal goods. I wonder, yeah, I, I'm just, I have the amusing thought of uh, a punishment that only deprives you of the highest temporal good. <laughs> you'll no longer, you'll be drunk well, <laughs> you the know, rest of your life. <laughs> no, I mean, excommunication in a way is that. You're, you're not allowed no, to. Right. Well, I mean, those aren't temporal goods. Those are spiritual goods. Those aren't temporal but goods. But you have, yeah, could yeah. have like, you know, yeah, true, temporal goods. You're not allowed to read Aristotle. But, but actually, actually, and I mean, Thomas talks about this. One of the punishments that he gets from Cicero's division of punishment is banishment. And banishment, if the highest temporal good, or almost the highest temporal good, is participation in the political life of the city, then banishment... Uh, is, you know, an extremely severe punishment because you are barred from any further participation. Yeah. You can't... So... You're cast out. My my core question um, is really... So I I can see the proportionality of of the punishments, um, but in... There's a quality of mortal sins that that, uh, Potter Edmund... um, specified which is uh there's that in sinning mortally you are implicitly uh uh rejecting the proper order of goods in in your life right right you are setting other things above god as your end what would the comparable uh sort of qualifying or, or defining feature of capital crimes be well you'd be you know, you'd... what wouldn't you be setting, uh, uh, turning against the common good of the city? So it'd be peace. So there'd be uh, just but as with just as with or? just as with. Uh, so not all sins are mortal sins. You have venial sins too. So likewise, jaywalking is, in a sense, a disturbance of the order of the city, but it's a very minor disturbance. Uh, but if you do something like treason. Or maybe debasing, devaluing the currency, or things of that nature. But, but notice you're you're appealing to the effects of the act to to determine uh, the magnitude of it of its uh, criminality. Where in mortal sins we don't we don't need to appeal to it. I don't I don't think effects. I am because uh, conspiring against the city might not have any actual effects. Okay. If you if you get caught early in your conspiracy. All you've done is, you know, have some meetings and had some grand plans. And if, you know, Cicero catches on quickly enough and gets to make a speech in the Senate against you, all your friends are going to, you know, move to the other side of the Senate House. And you're going to sure. be all alone. Uh, yeah. So. But I, uh, I guess I, I still don't see the, the defining. So it's something about um, peace, but obviously it, it, it's not just it can't just be rebellion or an intention to revolt, right? 
I mean, what, what's the what's the the sort of linchpin? What's the uh, core intention that has to be there for something to be uh, equivalent uh, on the, the sort of well, again, can it be scale? an implicit intention? The 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 direct intention might be I want to get rich quick by uh, passing a bunch of false currency. The mm -hmm. effect, however, and what you're implicitly have to intend is, I don't care about the common good of the city. I'm going to turn against the common good of the city and put my private good above it in such a the way that... The problem with that is that many, many people do that already in a way that I don't think the vast majority of people would recognize as even being criminal. Well, right. So you. There's a couple I mean, things going granted, on. Granted, we live in a we live in a in a, a distorted uh, society. Uh, but I, even apart from that, I I just you know people might say, oh, it's bad, but I can't imagine that in like 13th century uh, Italy, you know, and if you went to Florence or, or something, uh, people would say, oh, well, he, he is greedy, therefore he's worthy of execution. Well, again, it, you know, going to intentions belongs most of all to God. That's one of the reasons that vindication or retribution is, is his specifically. Uh, and so we, we don't ever get to it very well in this world. Uh, but if you're actually doing something or trying to do something so that we can uh, punish you, uh, yeah, I think, they, I think it... it the analogy would be anything that is, in fact, so destructive of the peace as to destroy it and not just slightly mar it. I mean, because, I, again, like, you know, jaywalking, speeding, or even petty theft. You, spe you steal an apple. That's bad. But it's not, uh, uh, you know, chopping the hand off or, or killing the person is probably excessive. Whereas if you steal a whole bunch of stuff, eventually it's no longer excessive. Because yeah, it, if you're it, looking, it would be destructive. Yeah, if you look at you look again at the, the if you look again at the the idea of punishment as um, restoring restoring the connection between um, between the order of ends and the pleasure that comes from being according to the order of the ends by inflicting a pain or an evil that's proportionate to um, the the good you've destroyed and or the inordinate pleasure that you've taken, and then if you look at different crimes, you can say there's you're going to have. Um, I mean, you take the the example of uh, stealing the apple. Maybe um, the the just punishment there will will be just you know a, a slap on the back of the hand or you know a fine or something, um, and then stealing more maybe you have more extreme punishment. Maybe if you commit adultery, you should be flogged or something. It's inflicting bodily pain for the illicit bodily pleasure taken. Um, and then say someone is, is a murderer, kills a bunch of people. There, uh, it seems like the only, the only punishment that's proportionate to... Um, the the illicit good that he's taken in a way by depriving other people of, of their lives is to deprive him of his life. But again, so so the modern objection, I, I we've kind of answered it, but I, I'll push it again. Is if you 
if someone is a murderer, yeah. killing him doesn't bring back the actual order that was marred. It just right. kills him. Well, it inflicts a pain on or, him. Or no, that let's not let's, let's, let's leave capital punishment to one side because maybe there's reasons to, to dislike capital punishment. But if if someone kills someone, throwing him in jail for the rest of his life doesn't bring anybody back. Why not just forgive? Aren't we called as Christians to forgive? Is it the new gospel, the gospel of love? Yeah, well, but I mean that's just a that's a dumb objection because it it, <laughs> it it completely destroys the ability of of government to govern, right? Okay, well then if you can't if you if you say, oh well, you know, uh, the the state as as a, an entity should abide by Christian charity uh, as if it were an individual person then, you know, the state's going to be turning the other cheek constantly, and uh, it, it, it's it's bizarre. I mean, the state ceases to be the state. It becomes this sort of uh, strange uh, parody of, a, of an individual. And I, what would that even look like? Right. That's, a, that's sort of a, the utilitarian, like, so the reason a lot of the modern uh, thinkers think we need punishment is because... The danger to the state is so great that you've got to do it. You've got to, you know, lock the person up and make it so unpleasant that other people won't also commit the sin. Uh, you know, uh, you know, won't commit the crime rather. But the idea isn't that there's the idea isn't that there's an order that can be restored because the idea is the order has already been marred and except in cases like where you, if someone steals and they haven't gotten rid of the funds, you can give the funds back. But if they've blown the funds or if what they did was manslaughter or in countless other examples, you can't repair the harm literally. Well, you can't yeah. repair the harm uh, in every... T- you, you can't repair the harm completely, but that person, the, the person who has committed the crime is a part of the order. And the disorder, um, there's a disorder that is in that person that is the crime that they've committed or the guilt of the crime that they've committed. That is, uh, they have inordinately indulged their will or, or inordinately taken um, the good away from others and even if you even if the others are now dead say it's a murderer you can't restore what's good to those other people nevertheless you can still restore the order in the criminal by giving him a punishment that's proportionate to what he he did that is giving him a pain that is in some way proportioned to the inordinate indulgence that he took so this would be uh, the medicinal side of, of sort of retributive justice. No, this is this is the retributive side. Uh, the medicinal would be if if you think that then thereby you uh, can also bring him to correction. That is that he th- educate him. But even if he's unrepentant, even if he's unrepentant, you're still restoring justice to some extent by punishing him. Because you're still you're, inflicting you're, you're a pain. You're curbing his will. Yeah, you're you're inflicting a pain that's that's proportionate to the inordinate pleasure that he took. I see. Okay. Well, that kind of makes more sense also of the sort of uh, crude early 
uh, uh, codes of justice where it was literally like, what did you do? <laughs> we'll do the same we'll thing back same, to you. Yeah. Yeah. An Hammurabi. Eye for an eye. <laughs> Hammurabi. Yeah. 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 yeah Which is obvious. Yeah. That, that, that it's obviously too crude to really uh, work. I mean, you know, I mean, among other right, things, you quickly come to circumstances where it's not going to work like adultery and <laughs> lying and yeah, even co- uh, even debasing coinage. <laughs> how, how do you <laughs> apply the quick. Lex Talionis to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So quick. there, there Make has some to be coins kind of that we can debase. Some, something in a way proportionate. So. If he right. took inordinate sensible pleasure, then you inflict sensible pain on him. If he, um, you know, took inordinate vengeance on people, killing them and so on, then you take ordinate vengeance on him and kill him. So what's the mistake that, it seems like people talk about dignity in such a way that would, moderns, we've, we've, we've kind of given uh, DeConnick's and, and Thomas's view of dignity, where it is, there's a twofold part, but the, most important part is the end, which you can lose, as we've discussed. And in doing that, you destroy your own dignity. Uh, what, however, what's the modern view of dignity? Why do, where, what's the modern error, if there is one? Well, what would Kant well, say? Let's, so, you know. okay, so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's similar, uh, I think, um, so, in Thomas, um, we have this idea uh, that human nature is, is directed uh, toward an end which, which gives it dignity by virtue of the perfection of the end for which it was made, right? Yeah. Um, and we see the, uh, the capability of human nature to achieve that end in the faculties of intellect and will, uh, which enable us to to know things as they are, and to ultimately know God, and, to love and him, through yeah. grace, yeah, to love God and, and to know and love Him as He is um, through grace. Uh, so, in in modern thought, you just take out the idea of God completely, <laughs> right? And uh, and so, what you lose then is also the idea of of uh, dignity being proportionate to the end, and instead dignity is just proportionate to those faculties. Uh, so human dignity is is a result of uh, human rational nature, and there's a lot of confusion about what constitutes rational nature in man. Um, so, you know, for for someone like Kant, rationality has has to do primarily with uh, with law governedness and objectivity, the universality of of the sort of human intellectual capacities, and that's you know that approximates something true. Um, but then, as you move beyond Kant and things get more and more confused, you end up with um, you know, the, the, with an idea of dignity that's uh, totally voluntaristic, where dignity is a result of personhood. And personhood has not so much to do with understanding, because gradually uh, modern philosophy loses a, a sense that understanding has purchase on reality and knowing things as they are. And instead, it's a matter of, of the will. So 
uh, the, the, the will to be and do whatever you are, or whatever you want to be, um, is, is sort of essential. And so personhood, which is equivalent to a certain understanding of the will, um, ends up uh, being all about uh, fundamental self-determination. And this leaks into all kinds of uh, Christian thought in weird ways. Um, so um, I won't. I won't extend yeah. that. Well, I mean, too one, far. one thing to, <laughs> to point out about that voluntaristic understanding of personal dignity is that yeah. it's not teleological anymore. So, right. the, with with Thomas, we're talking about how it's it's. It's teleological. Dignity is having some excellence that makes you worthy of attaining some good, that is, some end. And so it's dependent on the order of ends. Um, so dignity is not in, in human being. In God, dignity is completely um, absolute in the sense and, and un- infallible. That is, it can't be, God cannot be deprived of his dignity because he's always actually enjoying the, the final end which he himself is um, but in human beings because our dignity is dependent on a teleological order we can uh, to some extent lose that dignity insofar as we oppose that order but once you lose right. the once you lose the teleological understanding of of the human good then you lose a teleological understanding of dignity then there's no connection to a teleological order and then it becomes easy to say dignity is just you know it's just an on-off thing and if you're a person it's on and um yeah you know killing someone would be would or punishing them even would be would be contrary to that dignity. yeah right yeah, because yeah. and it seems what, like it yeah. seems like sort of the error in a way is a modern attempt or mo- maybe a modern confusion uh, of of trying to make men into God, of trying to to make our dignity like God's dignity. Because yeah, there's a lot of the things they say about our dignity would be true if they made the relevant distinctions about God Himself. Yeah. Like God can't lose His dignity. Well, there, it's, you know, be there's this this thing that that Kant talks about, uh, which he he describes as a Copernican revolution in metaphysics. <laughs> right. And for you know what he intends by that is something uh, fairly arcane. And seemingly benign, but in fact, it's uh, it's an anthropocentric idolatry, right? So, man, the human intellect, the human will, becomes the source of all existence, and the the <laughs> like the fount of reality, right? So, in a way, all uh, sort of mainstream European thought since then has followed suit. I mean, really, since since Descartes, because he, he really initiated this thing tacitly. But um, yeah, so it's it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, Joel. The, I mean, uh, you see this very early in the in sort of modernity in um, Pico della Mirandola's Oration on the Dignity of Man um, in the 15th century already, where he says that uh, man's dignity is that he doesn't have a nature. Um, <laughs> Oh, Everything gosh. else is, is sort of <laughs> has a nature and a natural end that's sort of determined by it. But man, because he has free will, he can be whatever he wants. So he's, he's, he's he doesn't have any nature, and so he's sort of that's what makes him godlike, and that's what gives him dignity. Yeah, 
and that's I mean that that's the same idea that you would find in like Jean Paul Sartre uh, in the twentieth century, um, and it's weird to see people who are otherwise uh, who are who are on the whole very orthodox and you know well reasoned intelligent people um, buy into uh, modified versions of this kind of personalism. Uh, because there's a lot of baggage behind it historically that's uh, that just doesn't uh, marry well with with Christianity. It yeah. doesn't really fit, and so you know a lot of there's potential for a lot of confusion. I mean, if you're not really well grounded in the faith and in in like really good theology, and then you adopt personalism, uh, you can go astray very easily. Now, if you are really well grounded and then you adopt personalism, it, it can be totally fine. Uh, but it's it's kind of dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I was also I was also thinking. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Marx's. Uh, for some reason, I was remembering it as being Hegel, but it's actually Marx who adopts as his uh, sort of Promethean creed. I hate all gods. Uh, sort of gives a lie to what he, I mean, and, you know, maybe there's useful things in Marx you can take from him, but his metaphysical conception here is one in which human nature has to replace any, uh, you know, divine uh, outside of ourselves. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I mean, with... with <laughs> I don't want to talk about Marx. <laughs> like, I, I hate I hate talking about Marx. Uh, I think it's it's generally a waste of time. But uh, I obviously like if you if you sort of spin out that thread, uh, there's not really much of a human nature even in Marx. There's just this sort of historical flow of power that's dialectical in some weird way, and you know people murder each other. Great. It's it's all very. Uh, nasty, ultimately. Right, right, right. Um, and I mean, Hegel is more, maybe more clearly bad here, and more clearly, <laughs> but, it, you know... It, is he is he more clearly bad? Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe I, mean I think that, that he, like, the Hegelian uh, uh, weird, um, like, immanentist, Gnostic thing at least tends toward uh, an absolute good Right now, maybe it's a it's an absolute good that's just the universe itself. Yeah, but uh, I think he thinks that, that 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 mankind himself has become eventually has become God. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, but Marx through does, the, as Marx a manifestation. The, right. It's contrary. I mean, even in his his doctoral dissertation on the difference between Democritus and Epicurus. Marx writes that you know the the creed of philosophy is that no other god is to be tolerated aside from human consciousness. And it seems like <laughs> the essence of human <laughs> dignity is that there's nothing. He doesn't. He bows to nothing. Yeah, I mean this, this is very 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 bad, very bad. Um, All right, well, wrapping yeah. up. We gotta. I, I gotta. I, I must attend to family duties now. Uh huh. But this was extremely fun. I think maybe next time we'll talk about justice and uh, sort of go from the particular to the more general. More general, yeah. Yeah. As we do our tour of the virtues. 
Thanks so much. And that's all for this episode. And uh, thank you both. This was great fun. Yeah, thank you. And thank you especially, yeah, Elliot, for having the idea of discussing this topic. It was really interesting. Uh, yeah. I'm glad it went well. I hope it went well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Halt die Nummer.